Last week we had welcomed in the Christmas season with the lighting of the first candle for the Advent um, season. And we're going to continue in that same expectation, that longing, that hope that a Savior is coming. Um, this week's candle is sometimes called the Bethlehem candle, and it reminds us of Jesus. And it reminds us of John 8:12, which says, When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Good morning, everybody. Really? Good morning, everybody. <laughs> All right, come on. And uh, yeah, let's get started, man. Today's a good day. It's the Lord's Day, and the Buckeyes are the Big Ten champs. So, All right. My name is Jim Breckbuehler. I'm the discipleship minister here, and I want to encourage everybody to open their Bibles. Um, I do want to make a confession. If you're using version, I kind of changed things up in the last 24 hours. So as long as you're following along on the screen, you should be good. Um, we are going to begin a series called Hope, the Arrival of a King. And so I just want to lay in, in uh, place right now just some fundamentals about hope uh, to set everything up for the, today and the next few weeks. First of all, let's talk about what biblical hope is. The hope that we're used to using is one that expresses desires for something to happen, but there's always attached to it maybe some uncertainty. So you may say, boy, I hope I get that day off, or I hope I can get home for the holidays, or I hope I can find that TV on a good sale. But when we're talking about biblical hope, we're talking about something that is a confident expectation and a desire for something good in the future. We're not hoping it's going to happen because of God, but we know it will happen because of God. Biblical hope not only desires something good for the future, it expects it to happen. And as we expect it to happen, it's because of God's moral character. If God says it will happen, then it will. <clears throat> now, at the same time, when we're looking at hope, we have to understand that there's hope on one side, it's like the 10, and then on the one is fear and anxiety. And if we're consumed with fear, if we're consumed with our anxiety, then we will find hope elusive. And so we are called to figure out, through the help of the Lord, how to move away from fear and anxiety, and move to a life of hope. Christians are to be hopeful people. We are to be joyful. 
we will have times of crisis, of death, of tragedy. But over the long haul, our reputation as Christians should be one of hope and joy. Sometimes I'll hear a, a message that I left, or I'll just think back to how I said something, and I'm like, man, I sounded like Eeyore. You know, it's like, you know, and, 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 you know, do you have some Eeyore moments? You know, we don't want to be like Eeyore. We want to be joyful people. Now, a couple more things. If we are going to live a life of hope, we have to be careful that we don't shoot ourselves in the foot through disobedience. What I mean by this is oftentimes we will tend to live against God's will. We will repeat the same sins over and over again. The ramifications come into us and we get overwhelmed and then we say, I just feel hopeless. Now, we can't go back and change the past, but we can make a new start and say, okay, I'm going to eliminate that sin out of my life or I'm going to start to do something that God calls me to do and that will increase one's ability to experience hope. Another thing is, if we are going to have a life of hope, is that we keep our eyes firmly on Jesus. I I just learned recently about a a fish. It's called the four-eyes fish. And the, the fish is below the water, but he has two lenses in each eye. And as he floats along, his eyes are half above and half below the water. One lens on the top is looking up. It's seeing what's in the air above. The other lens is below. It's down in the water. And that really represents what we need to be. We need to be spiritual four-eye fish. What I mean by that is that we keep our eye on Jesus all the time, while at the same time we are watching what's going on in the, the situation around us. We've constantly brought up Colossians 3, 1 and 2, where it says, Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above not on earthly things. And so as we navigate through life, as we navigate through the tough times, we have to deal with stuff here, but it's so critical that we are constantly keeping our eyes on Jesus. And then we need to be thankful. Philippians 4, 6 and 7 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Part of the important equation, part of the equation that is so important in understanding and getting a hold of peace is that we approach God's throne with thankfulness. Too often when we are anxious and when we're stressed out, we go to him with a laundry list of stuff. And we forget the part that says, with thanksgiving. Now, as I thought about this week, and I have a pretty strong opinion on this, I think that part of our problem in our society today is the negative news that we receive. We no longer receive a newspaper once a day or a magazine once a week. We can look at our phones, we can look at the computer, at work, at home, and we can see everything that's happening in our world in a matter of just minutes. And the feed is constant negativity. I looked at a well-known website, a news website this week, and I looked in on 25 of the first tabs, 24 were negative. 
And what that does is we are constantly feeding ourselves this negativity. We start to adopt an attitude. It's like it's hopeless. There's nothing to be thankful for. And it can just wear us down. So to combat this negativity, we have to figure out things to put in our minds to be thankful for. And at the same time, we, re- we need to remember what those that have gone on before us have had to endure. Um, I did this a couple years ago, and people felt it was kind of helpful, and I'm just going to blow through it again. Because when we see what other people have gone through in previous generations, it helps us to think of maybe the sky is not falling, and maybe we, cannot have, we don't need to have a woe-is-me attitude. If we go back to World War I that stretched from 1914 to 1918, there were over 18 million deaths and 23 million wounded, ranking it as one of the deadliest conflicts in human history. Eleven years after World War I came the Great Depression. It lasted for 10 years in the United States. Going into the Great Depression, we had 3.2% unemployment. Right now we have 4.1%. But it ballooned out to 25% in 1993. And we're all familiar with the looks of the men standing in line waiting for bread to be handed out at that time. It ended in 1939, and immediately on the heels of it, we begin the World War II that would last through 1945. It is by far the most costly war in terms of human life. The number of battle deaths and civilians in all countries is estimated to be at 56.4 million people. The country that was most uh, suffered the most in proportion is Poland. They lost 17% of their population, or 35 million. Adolf Hitler's Nazi Germany and his allies systematically murdered 6 million Jews, about two-thirds of the Jews in Europe. And then an interesting thing happened on the official end of World War II, September 2nd, 1945. On that very day, Vietnam declared its independence from France and set in motion a power struggle on that, for that country. It would draw the United States and other nations into the Vietnam conflict. The United States would suffer 58,220 deaths due to the Vietnam War. There'd be a million three total military deaths from all nations and a million total civilian deaths. Almost everyone was touched by the Vietnam War. We entered a very turbulent 11-year span running from 1963 to 1974. This would have been the time period when I was 4 through 14. During this time, our nation saw President Kennedy assassinated. We witnessed the six-day Israeli war with over 20,000 casualties in six days. 1968 proved to be a horrible year. Beginning in January of 1968 with the Tet Offensive, it ended up being the deadliest year on record for the Vietnam War. On April 4th, 1968, we witnessed the assassination of Martin Luther King. On June 5th, 1968, we witnessed the assassination of President Kennedy's brother, 
Bobby Kennedy. The prospect of nuclear war was ever-present, just as we are reminded now by North Korea. Our college campuses were experiencing unrest, and on April 4, 1970, our nation was shocked with the shooting killing of four students at Kent State. And on August 9, 1974, President Nixon resigned the office of the president due to his role in the Watergate break-in cover-up and left the White House on Marine One helicopter, the only president to resign. Now, my point in doing this is, as we look back onto his, in history, we have to think, wow, life has been tough for a very long time. And if folks could be thankful in the last century, then we can find things to be thankful for now. And I just want to touch on a few things to be thankful for, and then we'll move on. Because remember, being thankful is an important ingredient to finding peace and hope. And I just want to show a hands. Is anybody planning on eating today or using plastic? Okay. If you're not, you're really, I don't know. All right. So the United States relies super heavily on corn and soybeans. And so we don't hear a lot of this, but in the, the, the 2017 corn crop is projected to be a record corn crop. It will break the record that was set in 2016. We don't hear these things on our news. The, the soybean crop will be slightly lower, but it will be the record amount of soybeans produced all time. See, we live in a land of milk and honey, but how often do we get up in the morning and thank the Lord for the bountiful harvest that he provides for us, the fact that we have food on our table all the time? According to the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office, the U.S. economy is running at its full potential for the first time in a decade, a new milestone for an expansion that's now in its ninth year. This has just been growing constantly. We talk about religious persecution. Open Doors Ministry lists 50 of the top countries where religious persecution happens, and the United States is not on that list we enjoy amazing religious freedom, at least up till this point. Do we have problems? Yes. Do we have things to be thankful for? Absolutely. I would just challenge everybody to start each day, if we're, we're hoping, if we're looking for hope, looking for peace, that we just sit down as we pray and we start to just say, Lord, I thank you for my house. I thank you for my car. I thank you for this family member. I thank you for that family member. I thank you that I can tolerate that family member. Whatever, you know, or my boss, whatever it might be. I have a good boss, by the way. Um, now, here's the startling and ironic conclusion to all this. Even though we live in this nation that is very blessed, depending upon the, the research you look at, the United States usually ranks one first or near the top in anxiety and depression. The church in America is in decline. People are walking away from God. Kids are leaving the church when they graduate from high school. And you have to ask the question, is there a biblical correlation as to why people are leaving, losing hope? And I would say, I believe so. We have to ask the question, is there a biblical solution? <clears throat> to losing hope. I know so. 
So we find the answer in one of my favorite verses, Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul's not writing that the God of hope's going to give you a little bit. He says he wants to fill you completely with joy and peace, and he wants you to overflow with it. But there's a condition. We have to trust him. Now, when we talk about who we trust, what makes a person trustworthy, one of the things is they always come through. They're there for us. They do what they say they're going to do. They are there where they're supposed to be at the appointed time. People that we can trust normally don't fly by the seat of their pants. They have well-thought-out plans that they execute very well. So in the remaining amount of time, we're going to look at how God has laid out over the centuries a plan that's well-instituted and how he came through in order to help us build trust in what he says and to build trust in him. The whole Bible is about one person, Jesus, and his mission are reconciliation to our Heavenly Father. And as we look at the prophecies this morning, we'll look over the span of 2,000 years before Jesus came, and we will see that everything was carefully woven together. The whole Bible is tied together. Jesus' coming wasn't an afterthought. So let's begin. As we look at the first prophecy, this is called the Abrahamic promise. It would have been issued 2,000 years before Abraham before Jesus was born. And the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. That's the first promise God made to him. He would give him the promised land. And then he says, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who curse you, and I will bless those who, I will bless those who bless you, and curse, and whoever curses you, I will curse. Of course, Israel became a great nation. And then the all-important line at the end, and all people on earth will be blessed through you. Now, over the years, Israel would go to battle, and at times they would even be carried into captivity. And they would have had to have been thinking back to this Abrahamic promise going, wow, how is somebody going to bless all nations coming out of us when everybody's attacking us? We're actually slaves of them. But that was the promise that was made. God repeated that same promise to Isaac, Abraham's son, and then to Jacob, Isaac's son. Genesis 28, 14, your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. And he tells Jacob, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. Jacob knows something is coming through his lineage. And then he goes on to the tribe of Judah, and he makes a promise to Judah. Now, here's the important thing about Judah. Jacob had 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel, but Judah was not the first, second, or third kid. Usually in, in ancient times, the first kid was the, the one that was the most important. He was the fourth one, but he does have one thing to his credit. He's the one that came up with selling Joseph to the slave traders. And what an accomplishment. But here's the thing about Judah. Every tribe had their symbol, 
And Judah, when Jacob blessed him, linked him to being a lion, to being powerful. And the lion is the sign of Judah. And so he tells Judah, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. In other words, there will be a king that rules from your lineage until he whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. Then we move to another prophecy. Now, those are all 2,000 years before, roughly. Then we move to another prophecy by the prophet Isaiah, which would have been about 700 years before Jesus is born. In Isaiah 9, 6 and 7, he says, For us to... For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He's saying that this king will reign forever. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom. He will come out of the lineage of David establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. Abraham was promised somebody would come out of his lineage that would bless all nations. It was repeated to Isaac. It was repeated to Jacob. It was moved on out instead of to all the tribes, just to one tribe, Judah, and then on to David. And did this come to pass? Was God faithful? Was he trustworthy? We can look at the very six verses, first verses in Matthew. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. In ancient days, um, they would call you the son of somebody, but that person was probably a major patriarch, and they could have been five or ten, year, ten generations back. So first verse, Matthew is saying, hey, Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham. He's in their lineage. And it goes on to say, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. And then it mentions Perez. You know, a lot of times we may think, boy, I'm not worthy to be around the Lord. Satan can whisper in our ears that we can't be used. We may look and say, man, our families are messed up. All we have to do is look at the genealogy of Jesus. This is a little side note. There's an interesting story about Tamar. She had been married to Judah's first son. He was disobedient and killed. His second son was disobedient and killed as she didn't have anybody to marry as she wanted to have children. So she tricked her father-in-law Judah into using her services as she, as she posed as a prostitute. And she became pregnant with Perez and Zerah. And when he said, found out that his daughter-in-law was pregnant, he was going to burn her as punishment. And then, luckily, she had some proof and said, hey, by the way, you're the father of these kids. And all of a sudden, that got called off. But think about the lineage of Jesus, the people that are in it. Very flawed situations. God can use everybody. 
Moving on, Prez became the father of Hezron, Hezron, Ram. We go on down through there. Solomon, the father of Boaz, the mother was Rahab. Scholars think that was a prostitute, Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. Everything that God said would happen with Jesus is laid out from 2,000 years before to 700 to 600 years before. It's all laid out and just rolling down. You can pick up with that verse and follow it all the way to the end of Jesus' lineage to Joseph. There's an interesting thing. I had mentioned that the symbol of Judah was a lion. And when we go to Revelation 5.5, Jesus is referred to as the lion of the tribe of Judah. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the rolls, scroll, and its seven seals. The Bible is one collective verse, one collective book from the beginning to the end. Nothing is random. Now the, now the uh, prophet, prophet Micah He lived about 700 to 740 years. He prophesied about 700 to 740 years before Jesus was born. And he nailed the birthplace of Jesus. Scholars think that Bethlehem, which would have been about six miles south of Jerusalem, would have housed about 300 to 1,000 people. You could have fit the town of Bethlehem within this room. If it was 1,000, all the seats would be full, and we've had people up here too. Very small town. Micah 5 2 says, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come from me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times, in other words, from the very beginning. We have to remember that all things were created through Jesus and for Jesus and by Jesus. And in Matthew 2, 1, it says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, the Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. Isaiah, prophesying 700 years before Jesus was born, talked about the virgin birth. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. First chapter of Matthew 1, Verse 18, this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pleased to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Once again, something that was way earlier and predicted, God fulfills that promise. Nothing random, everything planned out, true to his word. Now on a rather sad prophecy, um, is Jeremiah 31, 15. There's a, a, a prophecy of the slaughter of infants. And Jeremiah says, this is what the Lord says. A voice is heard in Ramah. Ramah was right around the area. There's, there's a lot of debate over exactly what this is, but Ramah was right around the Bethlehem, not too far away from it. And, and, and they think that, that Rachel, uh, Joseph, Jacob's favorite wife, was buried right around. She was a patriarch mom. A voice is heard in Ramah, mourning and great weeping. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Now, oftentimes, prophecy will have a double meaning. There might be something that's up close 
as an event and then on out into the future. This very well could refer on the initial thing as when the children of Israel were carried off into captivity and mothers were weeping. But then it has a New Testament meaning that we find in Matthew 2, 16. Now, to give a little backstory to this, um, the Magi have shown up. And these are Arabian or Persian astronomers. They are Gentiles. They are not Jews. And they show up and they say, hey, King Herod, we've come to see the, the king. And he's like, what king? And it says, like, all of Jerusalem was kind of up in arms. And they're like, get the scrolls out. Let's figure out what they're talking about. And so they look it up, and they're like, hey, this guy's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. There's an interesting thing here because the Jews were told by non-Jews. And remember, Abraham was said that someone will come out of your people that will bless all nations. And so King Herod said, hey, go check it out, and then come back and let me know because he was going to eliminate Jesus. But the Magi, after they saw Jesus, were given a vision to go home to their country. And we pick up there, when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then that was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Now, over and over again in the New Testament, we see the New Testament writers reaching back to Old Testament prophecies and saying, hey, there it is fulfilled. Paul talks in Acts 2 and in Galatians 3, He specifically mentions how we are saved through faith, through the Abrahamic covenant. The Bible was not strung together with a bunch of random stories. It is a well-planned out plan by a heavenly father who's trustworthy and who we can put our trust in. Again, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with the power of the Holy Spirit. I want to close with this just quick, and that is, uh, I was reading something from John Piper, and he talked about this, this verse, and it's Psalm 42:11, And the psalmist is actually arguing with himself. And he says, why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil with me? In other words, inside of himself, he says, I am spiritually downcast. And for, maybe you're one of those people that are always up, but there are some, and I can be there where you can become spiritually downcast. And then the same psalmist is arguing with himself, and he's saying, hope in God, for I shall praise him, my salvation and my God. In other words, the psalmist, part of him, is preaching the other part of him. And there's probably no area of our lives where we need to preach to ourselves more, particularly in this day where there's a feeling of hopelessness, than in the area of hope. We can take what we've learned this morning and then go home and forget about it, or all week long, 
when we wake up in the morning and we hear the voices come in and like, you're worthless, you're no good, you've messed up, you can't do anything. We go, no, 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 sorry, Satan, you're out of here. I'm going to trust in the Lord today. He's going to fill me with all joy and peace. I'm going to trust in him. And we preach to ourselves a message of hope. It's something we literally need to do every day. All hope begins with the first step, and that is to give your life to Jesus Christ. Um, You may be on the outside looking in as far as your relationship with the Lord. And again, Jesus came solely to save the world, came to seek and save the lost. And if you want to give your life to Jesus today, if you want to add the greatest hope in the world to your life, you can do that. You can confess him as your personal Lord and Savior and meet him in baptism and have your sins washed away.